Hello and welcome to Monocle 24's The Urbanist, the show all about the cities we live in. I'm Andrew Tuck. Coming up on today's show, Public Realm. What are the opportunities maybe to reimagine the public realm? Because we've all been disrupted out of our habits. We are forming new habits, but we're also breaking bad habits. As time in lockdown starts to be measured in months rather than weeks, there is a shared feeling among urban dwellers across the world of something we're all missing public spaces, from parks to busy streets, a good bar or your local cafe. This week, we wanted to start a conversation about how coronavirus will impact our public realm for the years to come and what, if any, are the lessons we can take from it. That's coming up in the next 30 minutes, right here on The Urbanist, with me, Andrew Tuck. So welcome to this week's episode public realm looks set to be affected for years to come. The same goes for large gatherings and public events. So how can we rebuild people's confidence in returning to these cherished, shared places? Or is the urban future one of heightened isolation? I, for one, hope not. Well, to discuss all of this and the ways that designers are looking to answer some of these questions, I spoke with Paul Kulig, who's a principal of urban design at Perkins & Wills Studio, in Toronto. Let's have a listen. We've been very careful about considering how the public realm is affected in this sort of in-between condition, but then also looking long-term at what are the opportunities maybe to reimagine the public realm, because we've all been disrupted out of our habits. We are forming new habits, but we're also breaking bad habits. And so the opportunity over the coming months is sort of people return to work, people return to our public spaces, or to shift the balance, to shift that understanding about how we design but also inhabit and program public spaces. We think of public realm and public spaces for doing all sorts of things and as you said there's been a a real shift to make it more significant in the way that we put our cities together. So public realm for one of the exciting things about it in the past has been it's a place where people can come together, there's a sense of mingling with crowds, you have proximity to other people, you feel part of a society. Do you think that going forward one of the things will be to pull away from that to make sure that we separate a little bit, that you know you have one-way systems in parks appearing at the moment, for example, on pavements. Are you beginning to talk to your clients about, okay, maybe we need to think about more separation and privacy within public realm? I mean, one of the images in the last week that really stood out for me were the public protests in Jerusalem, but also there was another group in Warsaw in Poland where the spaces and the desire to make one's voice heard persevered beyond the imminent danger. And people and protesters were able to literally map out two-meter grids of X's across the public plazas in their capital cities and gather in the hundreds to make their point heard. And that, I think, speaks to a sort of magnetism of the public realm and also the adaptability. And I think the danger for many of us in the design community is going to be to predetermine a design solution that responds to the current pandemic, right? So I think we want to avoid designing park benches, for example, that'll be precisely two meters apart or bus shelters that have glass enclosures for individuals to self-isolate while they wait for transit and instead look for more gracious solutions, more flexible solutions that can withstand the test of time and potentially different and unimagined pandemics that'll come in the future. And so I think with that in mind, if we go back to that earlier framing, 
In the short term, yes, we're going to see a lot of temporary stanchions, crowd control barriers, other things that are marking off, Xing off areas. And we're seeing it in places like Singapore, for example, that are slowly starting to emerge from their quarantines with yellow tape that marks off every second bench or stadiums in Korea that are looking to reopen and potentially looking to reduce the capacity of their stadiums. And how does that then transition to a longer term view that allows the sort of life to come back into these spaces? And I think the key for us is to not predetermine, not to shrink wrap our public spaces, but to give them the graciousness and the flexibility to accommodate a wide variety of activities. Our most beloved public spaces, things that have gone back centuries in many cities, are simply open spaces. And really, it's just about providing a hardscape, a stage upon which the life of the city can gather and congregate. And then the flexible furniture, market stalls, stages are employed temporarily. And I think that ebb and flow of life will return. It'll be at a different rhythm. It may be employed or it may employ a lot of digital activities, for example, in the interim, and we will find ways to bring life back to the city through time. One of the interesting things is how many times you now wash your hands in a day or put antibacterial gel on your hands. In the public realm, we've seen a stripping away of those things like water fountains and even public toilets in many cities. They, they vanished. There was nowhere to wash your hands. And indeed, here in London, as the coronavirus hit, many public conveniences were closed, for example, because people were stealing loo paper and they didn't want people in them and they had to clean them and they didn't want the responsibility, which made it even more dangerous. There was literally nowhere for you to clean your hands. But do you think that needs to be built into our public realm? A greater knowledge of sanitation, of healthcare, of cleanliness... And even how we look after those public realm spaces. No, certainly. I mean, if you look back in history, if the 19th century pandemics were really about infectious diseases, whether it was tuberculosis, pneumonia, or other flus, and the response was really a, a public health response and was really focused on sanitation. I mean, it also had a good dose of Victorian moralizing that was sort of overlaid, but we did see a incredible shift in how public spaces were provided, both in the UK, across North America, new parks were created that were designed specifically to provide space for the working factory workers to get out of their small housing units, enjoy a bit of greenery, but also provide the street furniture, the hand-washing stations, the public bathrooms that could facilitate good hygiene. And so I think some version of that's going to be critical. And what really stood out for a number of us at Perkins and Will over the recent weeks is that while many of us have retreated and are able to work from home, there's still a small army of people that are delivering our lunches, that are delivering the phone charge the cables, the mice from Amazon and other places that facilitate our ability to self-isolate. And I think the future is going to really require some reallocation of our public spaces, our streets that maybe provide the basic sanitation facilities for these essential workers that allow the other non-essential staff essentially to facilitate their ability to work from home. So I'm thinking specifically about small hand washing stations, parking spaces that allow deliveries to occur. And maybe it happens with the reallocation of space. If we're not seeing the traffic levels on our streets that we did previously, can one lane be given over for deliveries, curbside management, sanitation facilities, maybe another is given over to recreational facilities, active transportation, bike lanes, walking, and then that sort of thing. And, and we're going to be starting to see experiments where we are already in cities around the world. I like the use of the word gracious when you talked about solutions. So is your feeling that, look, nobody wanted this to be forced upon us and nobody wants to be living through a pandemic. But do you feel that actually some of the shifts 
would be positive anyway. So even if the pandemic burns itself out or passes or we have a vaccination in the next few years, do you think that actually when you look back in five years, in 10 years, you could say, OK, the changes we made to our cities at the time were were essential, but they were positive things. I know that you have a, a motto as your company to honour the broader goals of society. And do you think you can live up to that motto in the work that you're doing now? Well, I think it's imperative, really, because, again, some of these solutions may not be simple design solutions and may not be objects, but it may be practices, behaviors, or patterns of inhabitation. And finding those opportunities in the current disruption is going to be the key to making some of these changes last, right? So many of us have found that we're no longer traveling and maybe we're not, we don't even need to travel as much. And then that may shape the amount of travel that happens or even the type of travel that happens. We may not be moving from our residential neighborhoods to central business districts, but we may be moving from one shared office space in our neighborhood to another person's shared office space, moving cross town, moving in different ways across the city. On the other hand, the current pandemic is also shone a light on some of the inequities that are in our cities and things that existed prior to the pandemic and shone a light on them in a way that maybe implores us to find a response. And so, again, what I'm looking at is in Toronto, for example, when the transit system shut bus service down approximately 30%, it worked across most parts of the city, but there was 12 bus routes that were still experiencing crowding. And someone mapped them out very quickly and discovered that these were the bus routes that served many of the warehouses, distribution centers, or hospitals that were feeding the delivery economy that allowed the rest of us to work from home. And so the quick adjustment there was to increase the bus service actually in those areas. And so finding those opportunities to really understand some of the shifts and nuances in our cities, how they function, how the public realm functions, is the the piece that we need to act on during the current months so that we can make them permanent. Paul Kulig there from Perkins and Will, on the line from Toronto. Now, it would be impossible to have a discussion about the public realm without a proper look at what happens once the sun sets. More and more cities are embracing the value and potential of the nighttime economy. But at the same time, this is one of the industries more deeply affected by this pandemic, with bars and clubs and restaurants shuttered. One person trying to help is Mirik Milan, a friend of ours here on The Urbanist and the former nightmare of Amsterdam, who has partnered up with Berlin's club commissioner to produce a global nighttime recovery plan. Mirik, thanks for joining us on The Urbanist. Now, the nighttime economy faces huge hurdles at the moment. Going back to bars, back to nightclubs is not something that people want to think about right now. You're one of the first nighttime mayors, someone who really rallied people behind the power of the nighttime economy. Just how worried are you? What's the feeling about what lies ahead for the nighttime economy? We are very worried about our industry because these nightclubs and venues, they support so many young creatives in developing their talents. But also, of course, it's such a massive industry. And we are hoping that we can find a way, like at this moment, we are bringing together all the nightmares from the world. We brought them together in a WhatsApp group because we really needed to do something and take immediate action. 
But what we also did is we brought together all the nighttime scientists also in a WhatsApp group because that helps to have a direct communication. And in the coming months, we hope to develop a global nighttime recovery plan where we think about, okay, how can these clubs and music festivals, how can they reopen? What are we going to do with sanitation? How can we build back this industry and also reimagining what the future will be? So we are very worried, but we're also very dedicated to come up with ideas and share them from all over the world to make sure that our industry survives. But none of us know how this pandemic will play out when there'll be a vaccine, when there'll be treatment, or whether it will somehow burn its way out even. But in the immediate months ahead, what things do you think might be possible to keep the nighttime economy ticking over? You're talking about music festivals where tens of thousands of people go, but are you hopeful that maybe there'll be a reopening in stages as we're seeing other parts of the economy that maybe places with no more than 20 people in and then no more than 50 people, that this would be a route to getting bars and nighttime venues up and running again? Yeah, so of course, we very much hope that we can reopen. We are also looking, of course, at sports and we're also looking at cultural institutions, what their plan of approach is. Those are two other sectors. And what we actually hope is that if they find a good way to open up again, that should count the same for nightclubs and bars and restaurants, etc. The only problem is, of course, a dance floor is the most fun when it's crowded. And a restaurant, yeah, you can maybe have a certain approach where, of course, you could have that every other table is only taken. So that's definitely something we are looking at is how can we approach this? The only problem for so many hospitality businesses out there is you can't run on 30% capacity. That's not how it's set up. So that is something which is very frightening for this industry. But that's one hand. But on the other hand, you also have your employees, of course. Do they want to come to work? Are they willing to serve people if there's no checks? So how do you keep them safe? So that's also something we are very much looking into is what is this balance? And the nightclubs and nighttime economy is often not seen as valuable as cultural institutions. But I think we are very much so. And I think there's like, if you see that, for example, London, one in seven or eight people works in the nighttime economy. So this is like a very lot of jobs we're talking about. Let's just talk about a really important thing is why these spaces are important. As you say, creativity, a lot of creative things happen, a lot of the people employed here. But why as public realm do you champion bars and clubs and spaces where festivals happen? What's the big picture value of this as public realm? For one hand, it's also like a social interaction. If I look at my own experience in the last month, I really miss the social interaction because here also like I often say is like many revolutions have started in a bar. (laughs) And I really believe that, you know, because this is where we connect and this is where we innovate. And I think this cross-pollination, which happens so often at night, whether it's on a dinner table or whether it's during a concert where you're interacting with other people, I think this is one of the driving factors of the nighttime economy is the cross-pollination between creatives and innovation coming from meeting other people. I often wonder how going ahead people will put up with this because, you know, the bars and clubs are also where people meet their lovers, meet new people. We're in a world that's locked down for dating even at the moment. So many people who had relationships who weren't living in the same households, can't see each other, all these extraordinary things. The nighttime is also about 
keeping us alive in a kind of really vital sense. And, and I guess that's the strange thing that gets lost from the conversation because when people talk about cultural institutions, they think of static art on walls. It's easily quantifiable, the number of visitors who go and look at it. But actually... The nightclub and the bar are kind of amazing, special things. They're fundamental to our culture. They are what draw people to cities. They're what make places feel vibrant, which you know more than anybody else. But do you feel that that bit gets left out of the debate sometimes? Oh, I very much. And thank you also for bringing this up. I had many conversations also with a lot of people that run queer nightclubs also in Amsterdam. And they also were also saying, hey, this crisis is also being very approached from a center that everybody has a family to fall back on huh? when you're in isolation or when you're in quarantine. This really approach from a family base. And there are so many singles in Amsterdam and so many people that live by themselves and really rely on going out and socializing. That's also for your mental health. This is really important. So I think people often forget how big this group is and governments have or cities have some problems relating to it. I'm not saying I have an answer for this because, of course, I hope that hey, we can just get back to business as usual. But there's a big possibility that that won't happen soon. And that's why we now already have to think about so what are other experience and interactions can we create? So we are very much looking at, OK, for conferences, how can we create a virtual experience where people can still interact? and uh, on an international level and think about how this is done. So one of the projects we have been setting up in, in Europe, it started in Berlin, it's going now Manchester, Amsterdam are all connected. It's called United We Stream. It's a streaming platform. It's a solidarity project where DJs perform out of empty nightclubs and the donations which people make when watching the live stream for a couple of hours, they go to the ecosystem of young creatives and freelancers, which are all out of a job. And there are so many creators working in nightclubs, which are not on staff, but they're working from a freelance perspective. And that is one project which is really successful. In Berlin, it raised more than 400k. And in Manchester, we're going already also to the 300k mark, so which we can help all these young creators that can apply for a bit of support to finish work they started, to make sure that their companies will still be up and running, hopefully after we start up the industry in a couple of months. But just coming back, Quickly to the virtual space, I think we really have to think about, okay, what kind of virtual experience can we also have? Because we're not going to stay home like this for the coming seven to eight months. That's just not possible. So we already want to think, okay, what is happening in June? The service is changing every month. So we're hoping that we can do some more virtual interaction starting in June, whether it's uh, through nightlife or through conferences. Merrick Milan, thank you so much for joining us on The Urbanist. And head over to vibelab.org to find out more about his global nighttime recovery plan. The psychologist Daniel Kahneman was awarded the Nobel Memorial Prize for Economics in 2002 for his theories concerning the irrationalities of the human mind when faced with complex questions and statistics. And his 2011 bestseller, Thinking Fast and Slow is a landmark publication in behavioural psychology. Monocle's Louis Hartnett Amara spoke to him about the ways we can expect human behaviour in public areas to change as a result of the pandemic, in both the short and the long term. Things will be different after this episode. I mean, certainly people will remember it for the rest of their lives. It's a unique event. It's going to change people. It's going to change the way people live. I'm not blessed with a crystal ball to anticipate the ways in which it will change things. A few things are obvious, but 
most is not. What's obvious to you? What's obvious is the kind of conversation we are having. That is going to change things, clearly. The fact that you can socialize effectively and quite pleasantly through Zoom with people at a distance. Those are things that people are doing because they're forced to do them. They're finding them, I think, enjoyable, and there's going to be more of it. What distance remote teaching is going to do to universities is something that professors are certainly asking themselves about. So that much is obvious. What will happen to work at home? You know, now that so many people are working from home, where does it work? Where does it not work? What's good about it? What's bad about it? And how to mitigate what's bad? There's going to be a lot of learning from this, and probably work arrangements are going to change. Citing Larry Brilliant, he was saying architecture will change because if we're going to be exposed to pandemics and this virus or another virus, putting people very close together may be a thing of the past. That was one of his speculations about the way the future will change. Why is it that people struggle to understand rare events very well at all? This is an extraordinarily rare event. This is something that you wouldn't expect to see again within our lifetime, although there's probably going to be a fear of it for the rest of our lifetime. So I suppose I'm thinking about it from my terms, where I'll always be conscious that a pandemic could happen. But I've failed to understand that that's an incredibly rare event, and that's probably a worry I could cast from my mind. Well, I mean, there we know that the thoughts of the pandemic are going to be near the top of your head for a while, and then they will drop down. We know from disasters, post-disasters, people buy a lot of insurance, and they avoid building in floodplains and so on. But that recovers fairly soon. And there's a lot of forgetting and people stop buying insurance against rare events. So at one level, there will be quick forgetting. At another, there would be traces that you'd be able to see. Well, before the pandemic, we used to do this, and now we do something else. This will undoubtedly happen. And it's going to be very interesting when there is relaxation, that I'm very curious about, to see how people adapt when there is relaxation of the current restrictions. So to some extent, some people will go back to living just the way they were before. I mean, you know, where there are beaches, they'll be full, or park will be full. On the other hand, there is going to be lingering fear of other people and of being especially with a crowd of other people. That's going to last. So when you think of whole industries that really survive by cramming people together, like entertainment, restaurants, that is going to be interesting, whether people remain, whether the fear lingers. And certainly until, I would say, until people feel safe, it's a matter not of months, it's not weeks, not months, but years. And so there'll be some period during which the economy will open up, many people will be out and about and doing their thing, but with a sense that anybody you meet could still be a carrier. That's going to be, in a way, more interesting than what's happening in lockdown. That was the psychologist Daniel Kahneman in conversation with Monocle's Louis Hartnett O'Mara. 
And there's more from this interview in the upcoming June issue of Monocle. Finally today, we turn our attention to New York. Andy Manchel has just published a new book titled Learning from Bryant Park, Revitalising Cities, Towns and Public Spaces. It's quite a timely publication as it sets out points for how we move forward in the midst of a pandemic to reimagine public spaces as more and more people crave for shared outdoor space. Monocle's America's editor-at-large, Ed Stocker, caught up with Andy a little earlier. In the early 90s, when urban space revitalization really started to take off, a lot of the issues that were keeping people out of this city center had to do with perceptions of lack of safety. And those of us who were involved in improving public places had to focus on how to reverse those perceptions of lack of safety. And I don't think in the coming months the situation will be all that much different, although the way in which to actually ensure the physical safety will be different. So what does that mean? Tell me a little bit about the safety concerns and how they're different. Obviously, back in the 70s, Bryant Park, for example, there were issues of crime, of that sort of lack of safety. Nowadays, it's very different. How do you reassure people when it's not a threat of sort of being mugged? It's in a way an invisible threat. It's still a physical threat to public safety. And there are two different things that we're dealing with here. One is the perception of lack of safety. And the other is the actual physically making the space safe. And those are two very different things. With respect to the latter, I don't think we know yet as to what makes people safe because we don't have any science about the transmission of the virus. We have very little science about how to treat the virus. And I expect that the amount of information we'll have will accelerate quite quickly. And I know there's a lot of pressure on people who are being asked about this to make predictions about what's going to happen next, but I think it's foolish to do so. Do you see, in a way, a renewed appreciation of placemaking or public space in New York and other cities around the world as a result of this pandemic? Absolutely. I think people will come to value their public spaces more, and I particularly am concerned that with the local governmental budget cutting that appears to be almost inevitable, that we hold the line on maintaining our public parks and public plazas. I want to talk about a decision that's been made by Mayor de Blasio coming into force in May, apparently, which is shutting off more streets in Manhattan to traffic in order to allow people to go for walks, get exercise with more social distancing. I just wondered if you thought, sort of bearing that in mind, whether you thought there could be a real change in how we view public space, but not just that, our relationship with traffic management, placemaking, mobility, whether, you know, doing initiatives like this could really make mayors, civic leaders rethink. And it's obviously been something that's been in the pipeline for a long time, but maybe they'll move more aggressively now about that balance between public space, access for pedestrians and everything else that goes with it. I say that because it's almost like this is a vast human experiment. It feels like now could be a time to look into those ideas when we are, as Cuomo calls it, 
the governor of New York on pause. I'm loving how quiet it is on the Upper West Side. And I appreciate that the air is better and that the, there's less traffic here. Although I have to say, as an economic development professional, lack of congestion and lack of traffic is generally a very bad thing. But I do think going forward that there has been a secular change in views about streets, that pedestrians are being preferenced over automobiles, that that's something that's going to continue to grow in New York City and in cities around the world. I assume that streets will be designed for pedestrians going forward. And I know that in New York City's Department of Transportation, there's a, a lot of sympathy for that. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. There's a lot of talk about people being kinder, gentler. There's talks of community in cities. Do you see some of that civic-mindedness, I guess, filtering down into placemaking after this is all over? It would be nice, but no. I think it would be great, and I think... You know, the focus of placemaking, the next phase of placemaking after we've had so many successes around the country is re-engaging people in the public sphere, making people feel engaged in their communities through public space and other ways. I think the most serious political problem in the United States today is the number of people who feel disengaged from both local institutions and regional and national institutions. Okay, so how do you change that? You change it by making places that are attractive to people and having people come to them and have them interact in those places and getting them away from their PlayStations and re-engaging them in social activity, getting them out to the library, getting them out to the local park, reinvesting in our public sphere and not reinvesting in our public sphere in terms of infrastructure, but reinvesting in our public sphere in terms of maintenance operations and programming. And do you think that's all achievable with what seems to have accelerated here in New York in recent years, which is what's been called a privatization of public space? Well, I'm not in agreement with the ideologues who talk about the privatization of public space. I mean, Bryant Park is a success in large part from ignoring those people. The model for the restoration of Bryant Park was accused of being a privatization of public space, a commercialization of public space. There were years spent negotiating on how many tables around the restaurant were going to be available to the public and how much things were going to cost. And none of that was relevant once the thing got up and running. That was Andy Manchel speaking to Monocle's Ed Stocker and his book, Learning from Bryant Park, Revitalizing Cities, Towns and Public Spaces, is out now. Sometimes at the weekend, I will just take myself on my own and I will walk down from my house, which is reasonably central in London. I walk down to the river, cross over the river to the South Bank, head down to Tate Modern. Not particularly to see the art. I like the thrill of the crowd milling around there. And the famous turbine hall where they often show huge monumental works of art, especially commissioned for the space, is just an amazing place to be. It's sort of like an indoor Italian square in a way. People come from every direction. They sit on the floor. They stare up the sky. They hang out with each other. Maybe they're going to go to the bookshop or maybe they are going to go and see some art, go and see the Rothkos, for example. But there is just a thrill that all these people from across the city have decided to come to the same spot, to be there together, to... It's not packed, but just to be among people, you know, that you spend much of your life normally commuting, being in an office, being in your home. 
that to step out of those environments and to be in a space with lots of people reminds you of the value and the significance of a city and the power of public realm. Suddenly you're muddled up with all sorts of people that you would never, ever see. And it's enriching that people-watching moment. We're at a funny moment in this lockdown, shutdown, stay-at-home moment where people, in a bid to make it acceptable and to get through it, are in a way over-celebrating some of the elements, I think. You know, the, yeah, it's great that you can make sourdough and that you're doing a puzzle in the evening rather than going to an expensive restaurant. I get all that. You know, It's going to be a correction. And a correction is always of some value. It sets you back on a better course. It makes you reassess the things that are important to you and to the city and the place you live. But let's not forget that actually the reason we're in a city, whether we don't live in a village or we don't live on a remote moor, is the thrill of the crowd. You know, there is that sense of being at one with people it's extraordinary. That's why people go to football matches and go to the theatre and like to be on the street. And it's there that serendipity happens. It's there that you see something you wouldn't have seen. You see people that you wouldn't have seen, that you bump into people. And that is the bit we mustn't lose focus on because there's lots of people kind of saying, yeah, yeah, we'll edge back into a world of isolation and always being at two metres from each other. In the end, we know that cannot be the truth. Our cities have been designed, the best cities, and we talked about Italy at just the beginning of this, You know, they've been designed to pull us from our homes, to bring us into that Italian market square, You know, where you have fruit and veg on, being sold on one side, you have the older seniors sat outside a cafe sipping drinks all day. That's life, that's culture, that's who we are. And no matter how long we can put up with this and we'll go along with it, and we want people to be well and safe, that is not who we are. Public realm belongs to us all and it's the space that we should be in. So as always, and every week I say it, I hope you're well, I hope you're safe and I hope that you've enjoyed the stories that you've heard here on The Urbanist. But for all of us, let's not give up on the idea that we will be back in that public realm. And I haven't been to a nightclub in years, but after speaking to Mirek, you want to be back on a dance floor, don't you? Well, that's all for this edition of The Urbanist. Today's episode was produced by Carlotta Ribello and David Stevens. David also edited the show. And to play you out of this week's episode, something, well, I did promise you, something we all have to put in our diaries for some time in the future. It's Whitney Houston, and I want to dance with somebody. Thank you for listening, City Lovers. Yeah.